man, I sound like an old man, don't I? In uh, that introduction, Satchel Paige, the African-American baseball player that never had a birth certificate one time. He was probably pitching in the major leagues when he was 50. And a reporter asked him after the game, said, Satchel, how old are you? And he made the most profound statement. And his answer was this. Hmm, he said, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? Now think about that. If I didn't know how old I was and you asked me how old I, I am, Mike, I'd say I'm 46, 47. Uh, but such a joy to be back at one of my favorite places, Scottsdale Bible Church. In fact, I told the pastor last night uh, that I'm going to keep coming back every year till that worship leader of yours, Troy, uh, has his metabolism changed because... <laughs> Nobody that old ought to have a 30-inch waist and wear those kind of jeans. So until I see that, you're, you're stuck with me. I'm coming back. Uh, you know, some time ago, reading devotionally through the Gospels, as I've done hundreds of times across my Christmas Christian pilgrimage, I was shocked by something I saw that I had seen before, but I hadn't really seen. Has that ever happened to you reading the Bible? You know what it was? Reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it was the numbers of times that our Lord asked questions. Now think about that. He wasn't just omnipotent with all power. He was omniscient. He had all knowledge. And yet he was always asking questions. I counted them. And in the four gospels, there are 150 questions that escaped the lips of our Lord. Didn't matter whether he was one-on-one -on -one or in a small group or a large crowd. He was always probing, asking questions. Not because he needed answers, uh, but because he was trying to get us to see where we were in circumstances and situations of life. And one of the questions of the Bible, out of that came a book I wrote called The Jesus Code, which is 52 scripture questions every believer ought to answer. I believe there are 52 questions that are asked in the Bible that everybody ought to be able to answer before they go to heaven. And you know, I want to deal with one of those questions today in our text. And it's a question that's in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 31, where the Bible asks this question from the pen of Paul. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, I'm speaking to people today here in this room and in the other venues who are up against it who may be asking that question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Remember Gideon? Things weren't going well in Gideon's life. He had some issues in leadership. He had the Midianites about to pounce upon him. There were all kinds of troubles going on in Judges chapter 6. And an angel of the Lord came to Gideon and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And in Judges 6, 13, Gideon looked at that angel and asked a question. He said, If the Lord is with me, why is all this happening to me? You ever ask that question? If the Lord is with me, why am I going through this? What, what is this deal with my kids? Why am I, why am I I'm, I'm in pain so often? What, why can I meet my, my financial needs? If the Lord is with me, why is all this happening to me? Well, our question of our text, if God be for us, who can be against us? You know, I had one of the defining moments in my life with that verse in Romans 8, 31. I didn't grow up in the church. I grew up in Fort Worth. Uh, when I was 17, just a few months from graduating from high school and going over to the university, I, had, I could count on that hand how many times I'd ever been in church. 
I never heard a prayer in my home, never saw the Bible in my home, much less opened. I didn't know Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were books of the Bible. And after a basketball game, a young man witnessed to me of Christ, took me to his gospel preaching church the next Sunday, and Christ came into my life. I began the great adventure for which I was created in the first place. I passed from darkness to light, death unto life. And after a few weeks in that church, I met a, a, a young girl in that church, and we kind of fell into, into, into that teenage kind of love deal. We went together for two or three years. So I was a junior over at TCU. And uh, she was a great Christian girl. She'd take me and we'd sit on her porch after every date. And she'd tell me Bible stories like you'd tell a third grader because I knew none of them. She'd tell me about Moses and she'd tell me about Joshua and Caleb. And, and we never had a date we didn't pray over. And anyways, I was two or three years older than she was. And she, uh, she went down to Baylor as a freshman. Well, she hadn't been down there six weeks till she dropped me like a hot potato. And I'll tell you what, I went through a period of six months of heartbreak. And I remember, re I read the Bible through those six months. And I remember every night when I turned that light off, this verse would be the last one I would read. If God is for us, who can be against us? Somebody here today needs this message today. But if we're going to ask that question, we've got to see it in the context of where it was asked. And we look right before that question, we find another question. And Paul says, what shall we say to these things? He says, well, here's what we'll say to them. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then we have to ask ourselves another question. What things? The things that precede that in verses 28 and 29 and 30. And we're going to see two things in these verses. The first thing we're going to see in verse 29 and 30 is that God is watching over you. God is watching over you. The Bible says in uh, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. There's a, there's a link here of, 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 there's a chain with five links in this verse. Every one of them are vital to understanding that God is watching over you right now. You may not know it, but he is. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro over this whole world to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are fixed on him. God is watching over you. Some of you think maybe he's left you, but he's not. He's watching over you. And the proof is in this passage right here. The, these five links of the chain. The first one we find, we see in this first link, the wisdom of God. It's, the Bible says, whom he foreknew. Here's the wisdom of God. Foreknowledge. That we get our word prognosis from that Greek word. The fact that God sees everything in your life before it happens. He has foreknowledge. You know, not one time when we read the Gospels do we ever read the Gospels and see Jesus coming into a circumstance and situation where he turns around to the disciples and says, wow, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> not one time. Not one time do we see him coming up on another circumstance or situation and say, man, that was a shock. That was a surprise. That came right out of left field. Never. Because he's never taken by surprise because of his wisdom. He has foreknowledge. And you know what? He's not taken by surprise in your circumstance. 
Maybe you're like Gideon saying, man, if the Lord is with me, why has all this happened to me? God has foreknowledge. He sees you. Even before you were born, do you remember what, he, you remember what God said to Jeremiah in chapter, chapter 1, verse 5 of Jeremiah's prophecy? He said, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you and set you apart and called you by name. Life doesn't begin at conception. Like somebody, life begins way back in the eternal counsels of God in his foreknowledge. Before you were formed in the womb, he knew you and called you by name. Nothing has taken him by surprise. Nothing in your circumstance and situation. He's watching over you. He has foreknowledge. That's the wisdom of God. The second link in this chain is the will of God. Look what it says. And those he, he foreknew, he predestined. Proharizo is the Greek word. Pro, that, that preposition in Greek that means before, horizo. What, what word do you think English we get from that? Horizon. Before the horizon. That's what predestination means. It's one of the most misunderstood words in all the Bible. Some people think it means that God has predestined before we ever are born, some of us to go to heaven and some of us to go to hell. And that's built on a false premise that we're all neutral, just expanded here in some kind of neutrality, but we're not all neutral. You know what? All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all headed to a godless eternity without Jesus Christ, unless we come to know him, whom to know is life eternal. Most of the time, this word predestination is found in the Bible. It doesn't deal with people. It deals with purposes. Look what it says here. It says we predestined what? To be conformed to the image of his son. God is using those circumstances in your life to conform you to the image of Christ. Another place we're predestined to the adoption of sons. It most always deals with purposes. This is the wisdom of God. This is the will of God. The third link in that chain, we find the way of God. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. This is the way of God. That he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That he calls us into fellowship with him. That he is the initiator. He's the initiator. You know, there are two calls in the Bible. There's the outward call. That's the one the church gives. That's the one the preacher gives. That's the one you give when you're sharing your faith. There's the outward call, but then there's the inward call. Remember Lydia at Philippi? Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened, attended to those things. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he said, the promise is for you and all whom the Lord our God shall call. The last invitation of the Bible in Revelation 22, what does it say? The spirit and the bride say come. The bride, who is the bride? The church of Jesus Christ. That's the outward call. We say come to Jesus. The spirit also says come. That's the inward call. How can two people sit on the same pew in the same service, hear the same sermon in the same anointing, and one of them fall under deep conviction of sin and open their heart and life to Christ, and the other walk out like they've been to a Phoenix Suns game. How can that happen? They both hear the outward call, but God is the initiator of the inward call to our hearts. This is the way of God. He calls us. And the fourth link in this chain, we find the work of God. What is the work of God? 
those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. That's the work of God, to make pure, to impute his righteousness unto us, to help us stand justified. You know, a court of law, a judge cannot justify anyone. They can acquit someone. They can pardon someone, but they can't justify it. They can't make it as if it never happened, but Jesus can in your life. That's why he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the work of God that took him to a cross where he died your death so you could live his life, where he took your sin so you could take his righteousness, where he bore the punishment of the wrath of God for your sin in his own body and purchased your redemption through his death and through his burial and through his resurrection that you might stand justified before the Father where he cannot see your sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. What a Savior. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's watching over us. And there's one final link in that chain, and that is the worship of God. Those whom he foreknew, he, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. For generations, preachers have been talking about that in this term, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. If you've come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, regeneration has taken place in your life, and you've been saved from the penalty of sin. What is the penalty of sin? Death. The wages of sin is death. But if you come to Jesus Christ, you, he, you have been saved from death, from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. We call that sanctification. The more you're, as Paul says here, conformed to the image of Christ, the less the power of sin has over your life, the more you live a victorious Christian life. So you, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And what does glorification mean? One day you will be saved from the very presence of sin. Think about that. In heaven, face to face with Christ where old things pass away and all become new. What shall we say to these things? What things? God is watching over us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? There's one other thing about these things. Not only is God watching over us, but in verse 28, we see that God is working for us. I want you to think about this. You're sitting here this morning over in another venue, maybe online watching. And while you've been about this service, God is at work in your life right now. I don't care who you are. God is working for you. Romans 8.28 is a family secret. It's only for those who are in the family of God. It's only for those who've known, who know Jesus Christ in the free pardoning of sin as a personal Lord and Savior. It's not for the lost world. You might as well put hieroglyphics before a lost world in Romans 8, 28. They can't understand it. And there's several things about this verse that'll help you see that right now, God is working for you, brokenhearted lady. Man that's wondering how you're gonna provide Somebody here today that's heard the doctor say you've got cancer like I did eight years ago. 
Somebody's here today with a kid who's wayward. God is working for you. Believe it. First thing I want you to see about this family secret is that it is confidential. It's confidential. It's only for us in the family of God. It's confidential. You know, when I was pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, it's one of the most biblically literate churches in the world. Pastored for 50 years by Dr. W.A. Crystal, the greatest pastor theologian of the 20th century, brilliant gospel preacher, filled with Dallas Theological Seminary presence. When I was pastor there every Sunday, Charles Ryrie from the Ryrie Study Bible sat right out there. Uh, Gene Merrill, the leading authority in Semitic languages in the world, sat right over there. I preached to all those professors from Dallas Theological Seminary. It was the most biblically literate church I've ever seen. And I was coming to apply them when I was preaching through the eighth chapter of Romans. And I took our staff and I had them scatter out all over the campus. And people that were coming into the services, I asked them to, to do a survey. And I asked them to ask people as they were coming in, quote Romans 8, 28. Now, you know, most people who are believers for any period of time have come across Romans 8, 28. 90% of the people in that survey, in that church, did what 90% of you would have done today. Had you been asked to quote Romans 8, 28 when you came in the room, you know what you'd have said, most of you? Oh, I know that verse. All things work together for good. You would have left off the first phrase. And it's the secret to understanding it. It's confidential. Look at the first phrase in Romans 8, 28. For we know. For we know. For we know. It is, it is confidential. Now, I, I see on the screen it says comprehensive, but that's, that's uh, the second point. The first point is it's confidential. For we know. That's the key to understanding this verse. It's not for the lost world. God is watching over us in the family of God. And, and, and we know that these things are working together for good. You know, most of us have family secrets. Uh, some of them are a bit sinister, I bet, if we really knew them. But for the most part, they're funny and laughable. When I was pastor down in Fort Lauderdale, we had a lady in our church who at that time, back in the 80s, was the was the leading, one of the leading Christian female authors uh, in the world. And uh, they, they had a family secret. Now, I wouldn't tell you who she was, but I would tell you that her father was the most famous evangelist of the 20th century, probably of the whole church age outside Apostle Paul. And of course, I'm talking about Gigi Graham, Billy Graham's daughter, Trevigian. And the reason I'm going to tell you this story is Gigi's given me permission to share it. I, I wouldn't be telling it. But Gigi and her husband, Stefan, who worked in those days with Larry Crabb down there, and then Stefan took over the counseling center when Larry left, uh, they were our, some of our best friends. Every Friday night, my wife Susie and I and Gigi and, and Stefan had dinner together. And there was coming a time when she was going to have surgery. And everybody kind of knew that Gigi was going to have some surgery, but boy, they were seal-lipped about it. I mean, they wouldn't say, well, every Friday night we'd go out to dinner and, you know, I'd throw a few hints around because you know how it is. We, we want to know how to pray for people, you know, when we're trying to figure out uh, what they're doing. But, but boy, they wouldn't say a word about it and no one knew what it was going to be until the day of the surgery when her little first-grade son, Anthony, who had just learned to print put a prayer request on the bulletin board of the christian school where all our kids went which said please pray for my mommy 
she's having her fat sucked out today. <laughs> so their, their family secret, their family secret got out for the whole world to see. Now, the point of that is this. In the family of God, you and I have a family secret. There's something we know that nobody else outside our family knows. And this is it. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Now, if you don't believe this is a family secret, you go next Friday night over to your county hospital where all those people are coming in the emergency room with gunshot wounds and stabbings and all kinds of horrible things going on, overdoses, everything. Saddle up to some of those people out in the lobby of that emergency room waiting on a loved one in there. Just go over and say, look, I just wanted to come by today to tell you I don't know what's going on in there, but all things are working together for good. You'll be in the emergency room yourself <laughs> in about four or five minutes. Why? Because the lost world doesn't know this, that God is working for us that all these things are working together for good. It's confidential. Confront the existentialist today who says there's no real purpose in life, and you say, oh, yes, there is, but it's a family secret. We know that all these things are working together for good. It's confidential. Secondly, I want you to see it's constructive. Things work together for good. We get one English word that we translate out of this Greek word, we get things work together. And we get our English word synergy from that Greek word. You know what something is that's synergistic or that has synergy? I, uh, you know, if I had a wooden pencil up here, I could break it really easily in my hand. But if I had two of them put together, it's exponentially more difficult to break. That's synergy. That these things coming together, and that's what God is saying here. This family secret we have is comprehensive. Things, uh, as constructive rather, things work together for good. It's constructive. These things are working together for our good. Remember what David said in Psalm 119, verse 17? He said, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your statutes. I look back over my life and things that I thought were so difficult in, that, in, the, in the time frame in which they were happening, in that snapshot of time, I look back and I see the hand of God using that for my good and his glory. I went to a reunion the other day. After 40, 50 years not seeing those kids I grew up with and... and uh, I saw some of those girls I used to date, that girl I used to date. I got back home that night and I looked at Susie, my wife, and I said, thank God he didn't answer my prayers. I mean, <laughs> thank God. Things work together for good. Things work together for good. It, it's the gospel truth. Uh, even bad things contribute to our good by refining our faith, as David said. Be careful to define good here in God's terms, not your own. Because that which is for our good is ultimately for the good of God because we're a part of his bigger kingdom. There's a third thing I want you to see, and that's this. This family secret's not only confidential and constructive, 
but it's comprehensive. Look what it says. For we know what? That all things, wow. You know, if he'd have said, it'd be more palatable to me if he'd have said, you know, we know that some things work together for good. Or if he'd have said, you know, we know that many things work together for good. Or even if he'd have said, we know that most things work together for good. But listen to what the Bible says. It says, for we know that all things work together for good. Bad things, good things, all things are working together for good. Not everything that happens is good. But God can take everything. You know, I... I ate a biscuit over at the hotel for breakfast this morning. But I wouldn't have gone into that restaurant and said, would you bring me a bowl of baking soda uh, and a bowl of flour and, and some raw eggs and just eating those bowl of raw eggs and eating that bowl of flour and then eating that bacon. The, uh, isolated, those things would have been horrible. But you put them all together and stir them up, put a few other things there. I love biscuits. And that's the way it is with you. And all those things swirling around your life Isolated, They may not be very tasteful, but woven together in the tapestry of the cross, God is working for you. And all things work together for good. What about Joseph? Remember Joseph? Everything that happened to Joseph from the human perspective was bad. Jealousy is bad. Your brother's being jealous. Lying is bad. Being thrown in a pit is bad. Having your coat stolen is bad. Putting blood of an animal on it and your brother's taking it to your dad and telling him you must have been killed by an animal. They found your coat. Having your dad live all those years thinking his loving son was dead is bad. Being sold to the Ishmaelites is bad. Being taken down to Egypt is bad. In a foreign culture, being put on a slave block is bad. Being served, sold as a slave is bad. Being, being purchased by someone that's serving their home is bad and then when you've been faithful being seduced by the master's wife is bad and then when you've got moral character and say no and she rips your shirt off and then lies and said you tried to rape her is bad and then you're thrown in prison is bad everything that happened to Joseph was bad but what did he say later when his brothers were revealed to him and they came during the famine in chapter 45 he said look don't think bad about yourself God sent me before you to preserve life. And what did he say in chapter 50? He said, look, guys, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. All things. This, this family secret we have is comprehensive. All things work together for good. Not isolated, but woven together in the tapestry of the cross in your life. And one final word, and we're through. God is working for you. This family secret is confidential. We know it's, co it's constructive. Things work together for good. It's comprehensive, all things, and it's conditional. In that survey I mentioned about First Baptist House, they also left off the last phrase, which says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Do you know there's a purpose in your life that no one else can feel like you can because you're an individual. Nobody has a thumbprint like you. No one has a DNA like you. God made you different from everyone else because you're indescribably valuable to him. And there's something you can do that no one else can do. 
That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 13, that God has assigned to you an area of influence. Think about that. There's a purpose in your life. Is it being fulfilled? The primary purpose is to, the primary purpose of, of a pen, for example, is to write. I've got a 19 cent plastic pen in my pocket. I'd rather have a 19 cent pen that'll write than an expensive German pen that skips all the time because the primary purpose of a pen is to write. The primary purpose of a car is to transport us from point A to point B. I'd rather have a car started every time it was a few years old than to have a brand new shiny one that, that wouldn't start half the time. What is your primary purpose in life? Why are you even here? It's to know him. Whom to know is life. Eternal. Abundant. Fruitful. The very purpose of living is to know Christ. And for those of us who are called according to that purpose, this promise is for us who love him. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Romans 8, 28 is a wonderful promise. But you know, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and call it. But if you don't know Christ, the exact opposite is true. Good things can work together for bad for you. You say, what do you mean? I mean, good things like this message this morning of Christ and his redeeming love. You can hear it. And if you walk out of here without embracing it, Paul said in Ephesians that every time you hear the gospel and you say no, it's like your heart gets a little harder. And he used a word that we get our word callous from. I have a callus on my finger, on my hand right here. Not from a garden hoe, it's from my golf clubs, but it's a callus. I can take a pen and stick it in it and don't even feel it. And Paul said, that's the way your heart gets. It's not that God no longer calls you, but the more you neglect, the more you can't sense and feel that call of God upon your life. What shall we say to these things that God is watching over us and God is working for us? I'll tell you what we shall say. If God be for us, who can be against us? And you know what the answer is? No one, no thing that you're up against. If God is for you, who can be against you? He's watching over you. He's working for you. He's calling you to himself. Let's bow our hearts together as we pray. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed across the room. You've heard the outward call. Do you hear that inward call? The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Come to Jesus. That inward call, oh, it, it won't be audibly. It's louder than that. Him knocking upon your heart's door, him pulling at your heartstrings. And if you're here today and have never began that great adventure for which Christ called, you can this morning. By saying, Lord, forgive me my sin. Come into my life and make me what you want me to be. Somebody here today with a heartache, a heartbreak. Somebody here today like Gideon saying, if the Lord is with me, why is all this happening? You know what? The question is not why. 
question is what? What will I do in response to what I've heard today? That God has not abandoned me. That he's watching over me. That he's working for me. So what should we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Seal these words, Lord, in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.